What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If that's you, if you've got a question about the Catholic faith, kind of looking around trying to figure out how to get the answer to that question, hey, we can help. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205-271-2985. If you're watching us on TV today, you can participate as well. Here's our email address, ctc at ewtn.com. In any event, Love to hear from you today. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming on both platforms right now, along with our other you know, various ways of getting the good news out there. So uh, if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, just put your question in the comments box. And uh, Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. Again, the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. All right, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? Doing decent, thank you. Interesting question here from Rodney. Rodney says, a blog comment that I was reading stated that the Catholic faith is a cult. That sounded totally ridiculous to me, but I was curious if you've had any background information on why someone would think this, and how should I respond? Thanks, Rodney. Yes, I do have background information on that, and I think I know why someone would respond that way. I think they are equivocating on the meaning of the word cult. Okay. So, uh, to a sociologist, a cult is a very particular kind of religious organization that's usually ordered around a charismatic uh, figure that brainwashes uh, participants and cuts them off from their families, mm-hmm. and that's a kind of hot, hot botch, you know, pressure cooker, love bombing uh, with alienated people, and then you, you know, get them thinking bizarre things like the mystic hamburger is going to come save us all, that sort of <laughs> thing, you know. And that, that's sort of your standard sociological understanding of a cult. In, in the world of evangelical Protestantism and fundamentalist Protestantism, Protestantism Cult uh, can sometimes, that word can sometimes be used to mean false religion. Mm. And so it has a broader connotation in that little subculture. Okay. And it's very typical of, uh, of traditional evangelicals and fundamentalists to consider Catholicism to be a false religion. Um, I mean, the Reformers made this charge uh, 500 years ago, and they held actually that the Pope was the Antichrist. Um, and the church, the Whore of Babylon, mentioned in the book of Revelation. And mm. so that, that kind of deep animus against Catholicism goes way back in Protestant history. Well, all right. And uh, Rodney, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's an email from Ted. I was a little taken aback when I heard Dr. Anders, when referring to Eucharistic miracles, say they cease to be Eucharist. How can you say that about something that has been changed into what Christ said in the first place? This is my body, and scientifically analyzed as being a uh, of a muscle of the heart 
and still living. I disagree. That's from Ted. Yeah, thanks. So let's just be really clear on the definition of Eucharist given by the Church. When the Church speaks of the Eucharist, they are speaking, and, and I'm abstracting from the total right. I'm yes. just talking about the consecrated species. Okay. okay. When you talk all about right. the consecrated species, we're talking about something, first of all, that, that ha- begins mm-hmm. as bread and wine, and then through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, uh, is transubstantiated. The substance of bread and wine uh, is changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood. And wherever you have his body and blood, you have his soul and divinity to boot. So mm-hmm. you've got the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But with the appearance... And all of the uh, all of the properties, all the sensible properties of bread and wine, and and given to us in that way, the Eucharist is both the reality of Christ's presence mm-hmm. and the sign of His presence. Okay. And the specific sign is the appearance of bread and wine. And there's a significance to the appearance of bread and wine because when you have bread and wine. Uh, they they give us the reality of Christ's body and blood, but they also represent body and blood in a state of separation. See, the bread over here, the wine over there, call to mind mm-hmm. the separation of Christ's body from blood. Now, the actual real presence, Christ's body and blood are not separated. You have body and blood under each species. Mm-hmm. But in the appearance, you have what would seem to be body over here, what would seem to be bread over there. I mean, uh, body over here, wine over there. And so the way the Eucharist actually appears to the senses, seeming to be bread and wine, is essential to the nature of the Eucharist as a sacrament. Now, in a Eucharistic miracle, all the ones that I've heard about, uh, what began as looking like bread stops looking like bread and Mm. starts looking like human flesh. So let's, let's take the claim of the miracle seriously and say that this has been changed into the heart tissue of Jesus. And this is Christ's actual heart tissue. That's not the definition of the Eucharist. The definition of the Eucharist is not a part of Jesus' body, but the totality of the substance of his body and blood. You see? So I'm not denying a miracle. I'm not denying the reality of Christ's heart tissue. Yeah. I'm saying that's not the definition of the Eucharist. That's a miracle making it into something different, namely the presence of Christ's heart tissue. Okay. Ted, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's a quick one as we're heading off to break. This is from Justin. Are we able to choose our parish community, even if it's not the closest one geographically to us? Yes. You can choose. Choose away. It wasn't always that way, was it? It wasn't always that way, but now you can go to Mass wherever you want to go to Mass. Uh, When did that change? Um don't know to be honest with you but you can that, that is the that is the current practice and you don't even have to remain in the roman rite so you could go to the a byzantine rite catholic church one day and a roman rite church one day and a coptic rite one day or alexandrian rite i should say uh you know you name it you you can anybody who's a catholic you uh-huh. can you can attend the liturgy there if it's a genuinely catholic liturgy and you have fulfilled your Sunday obligation. Fantastic. Hey, uh, us, Justin, thank you so much for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, uh, the, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Christina in Parma, Ohio. We have some lines open for you as well. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or maybe you'd like to tell us what is keeping you from becoming a Catholic. Here's the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 
888-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you're ready, let's go to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Christina, a first-time caller in Parma, Ohio, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey there, Christina. What's on your mind today? Hello. My name's Christina, and I am Catholic. I have ADHD and autism, but I'm a fully functional adult. I, I pay my bills. I have raised a child. I am married to a wonderful man. I work as a health aide. I'm very responsible. But my deficiencies that I have with the Asperger's and my autistic tendencies, I have a very hard time connecting with people in my church because I I have the anxiety about, about being around large groups of people. So I go to church and I do my prayers. With the ADHD, I can't remember long passages and Bible verses and all the sacraments and everything. So I am going through the Ascension app, Bible in a year, and Catechism in a year. As an adult, just to refresh my memory, it's good to do every, you know, couple years, just to kind of keep up on everything. But from my perspective, I know how I feel about God and Jesus and the Holy Trinity and the Holy Spirit. And all you have to have is love in your heart and have the love of a child. Like Jesus said to the children, if you love me with the heart of a child, there's not much more that you have to understand. Yes, I I, I agree with you. Would you like me to respond to that? Sure. Okay, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate the call very much. And I'm I'm profoundly sympathetic to uh, your challenges in life. I have family members in exactly the same situation. It's something that I'm really familiar with and have a lot of firsthand experience with. So uh, I understand that you know our different sort of uh, neurological dispositions mm-hmm. can m- make our engagement in normal Catholic life more or less uh, easy, more or less compelling or or um, attractive, and that can that's a real issue. I'm sensitive to it. Um, so uh, what uh, struck me when you were speaking was that, you know, we're all called to love, uh, we're all called to be in relationship, but not all in the same way. I mean, that's a very biblical doctrine. It's what St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, right? That we, um, the body of Christ is, has different aptitudes. You know, not everybody's a foot, not everybody's a pinky finger, not everybody's a nostril. You know, you, you have your place in the body of Christ and you serve in charity according to the gifts that you've been given and the temperament that you've been given. You said to me that you were a mother. Um, you know, you, uh, the primary way in which we live out our Catholic faith is through our vocation, and, and if your vocation is to parenthood, then that's that's one of your primary relationships, to, to husband, to child, yeah. uh, to family, and regardless of who you know in the pew next to you. Now, you know, some of us, you know, there are real social butterflies that have the gift of knowing everybody in the pew, and they have their role in the church, but, you know, there are others of us that aren't that guy or that girl, and we have another mode of engagement, and that's perfectly fine. Um, now, also while you were speaking, it occurred to me you might be aware of a Father Matthew P. Schneider, 
who is an autistic priest who talks and, and uh, ministers a lot from that point of view and to people with that condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a new book coming out called God Loves the Autistic Mind. Uh, so you might put that on your, uh, on your reading list. Someone else who has thought very, very deeply about the spirituality of autism, uh, and this is highbrow stuff. If you're not into philosophy, this wouldn't be for you. But Eleanor Stump of St. Louis University, very eminent Catholic philosopher, has a book called Wandering in Darkness, which is about the problem of suffering. But she, she deals with interpersonal knowledge as a big part of that discussion, and in doing that did a lot of research into autism and the autistic perspective on life and relationships, and it informs her philosophy. So if you're, if you're into highbrow stuff, uh, Eleanor Stump is a really interesting person to read mm. on the philosophy of the spirituality of autism. A little bit more down-to-earth would be uh, Father Matthew Schneider. Yeah, he's great. He's been on EWTN uh, several times. Yep, yep, yep. Very, very wonderful man. And uh, Christina, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Let's go now to Trey in Lafayette, Indiana, listening on the great Catholic Radio Indy. Hey, Trey, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thank you for taking my call. So I am actually a Lutheran, and uh, one thing that uh, is kind of keeping me from moving over to the Catholic faith is I'm confused about um, how the Eucharist works. Um, I'm thinking of the scripture in Hebrews 7, when it says that Christ was sacrificed once for all, and um, I think I kind of had this belief that uh, Catholics believe that Christ was sacrificed every time that the Eucharist is performed, and uh, I just would like that clarified. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, the, the, the operative word here is sacrifice, mm-hmm. and what do we mean by the term? And so, there is a Protestant uh, objection to Catholicism, that is based on a misunderstanding. And it is the idea that we believe that the death of Christ on the cross was not sufficient. That's, the, that's sort of the Protestant line. You Catholics don't think Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient. And to add insult to injury, you go about sacrificing him every week. It's like you're subjecting the Son of God to the indignity of the cross over and over and over again, thinking that you have to kill and immolate him and and offer him up to God as if the, the one atoning sacrifice was not sufficient. And that is a complete misstatement of the Catholic point of view. So the Catholic perspective is that the sacrifice of the cross is absolutely sufficient to do what the sacrifice of the cross was designed to do, namely to merit for us forgiveness of sins, the grace of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of redemption. And and that is the only sacrifice that, that you need to, to get that done, right? Um, and, uh, furthermore, the death of Christ on the cross spelled the end of the Levitical sacrificial system. We no longer have to approach God through the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and, and all of the rituals of purity and all the rest of it and the blood of goats and bulls and so forth. All that's been ended with the death of Jesus. Now, the question of what Christ accomplished on the cross is one thing. Let's call that redemption objectively accomplished, right, to borrow... Um, a term of uh, the, the book by uh, John Murray, actually a Presbyterian theologian, wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. All right, so I'm borrowing okay. his language. <laughs> um, so you have the redemption objectively accomplished on the cross. Then you have the question of how do you apply that to my life? How do I actually get that grace into my life? And here is a difference between Lutherans and Catholics. 
Martin Luther's view was the only thing necessary to apply the grace of redemption to my life was faith, the doctrine of faith alone. And uh, I would maintain, and, and another time we could talk about this at greater length, that that's an unbiblical position, that Luther misread St. Paul on the relationship of faith, works, and the law. Um, and uh, we can go into that more, but I'm, now I'm dealing with the issue of sacrifice. Uh, but Christ clearly tells us that if we want to be his disciples, we have to take up our cross and follow him. That the Christian life is a life of sacrifice, and what it means to be incorporated into Christ is not a life of faith alone, but a life whereby we become a second Christ. Uh, we take on Christ's mind. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 about having the mind of Christ. Uh, St. Peter writes that Christ died, leaving us an example that we might do likewise. And then in Romans chapter 12, uh, St. Paul tells us that we are to offer our own bodies uh, as living sacrifices, and that this is our spiritual act of worship. Um, in Romans, I think it's 15, Paul, it's the only place Paul ever refers to himself as a priest. He says that his priestly duty is to offer the Gentiles as a pure sacrifice to God. Like he saw his apostolic work as gathering together uh, a pure offering to be made to God in the persons of the Gentiles themselves. And again, echoing that idea that we offer ourselves in imitation of the offering of Christ, and that is our spiritual worship, that we give ourselves to God and to one another out of charity. Now, how does that relate to Holy Communion? How does that relate to the Mass? In the Mass, uh, in the liturgy, in the Eucharist, Christ gives himself to us in the, in the, under the appearance of bread and wine. You know this as a Lutheran. And bread and wine would seem to represent the body and blood of Christ in a state of separation. Body over here, blood over there, right? They, you have two species, not just one, because they show forth, they represent uh, what happened on Calvary. And so the language of the liturgy, language of the Mass, is that the Mass is the memorial of Christ's death on the cross. We use that exact language when we go to Mass. It's the memorial of Christ's offering. It is not the death of Christ all over again. I mean, that's just a gross misunderstanding of the Catholic's position. The death happened only once. Redemption objectively accomplished on the cross, sufficient to merit the grace of redemption for everyone. But it's represented to us in the Mass through the, through the double consecration of the elements. And so it becomes the memorial of his sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But with this difference, the victim who died on the cross really is in these elements. And you, you believe that as Lutherans as well, that Christ is really genuinely present on the altar. Mm -hmm. The victim who died on the, on the cross is also on the altar. The priest who offered himself on the cross is also on the altar. That's Christ again. And the reason that Christ offered himself to reconcile man to God is also in the mind of the priest who offers the Mass, namely that mm -hmm. we're doing this as part of the redemption of the world. And since we are supposed to live our lives in imitation of Christ's own self-offering, it is fitting that that be represented to us in a sacrament, that the self-offering of Christ is on display before us in the very elements themselves, whereby we receive Christ himself. And so we can say to God, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus in reparation for my sins and the sins of the whole world. I can say that as I'm going to Mass, because I really have the body and blood of Christ in my very hands. Yeah. And so uh, the, the Church uses the language of an unbloody sacrifice, a sacrifice that is a, in a completely different mode, a totally different manner 
than what happened on Calvary. It is the memorial of what happened on Calvary, wherein we offer Christ and ourselves along with him in service and worship to God. But the Christ who's present in the Eucharist is an unbloody, glorified, risen Jesus, uh, not the bloody, bleeding Christ of Calvary. That is once and for all. Is that helpful to you? Yes, that really answered my question. Fantastic. Appreciate it. Thanks for the call. Thank you, uh, Trey. That opens up a line for you now, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Here's uh, here's a a great question from Daniel. This might take up the whole hour. He's uh, watching us on YouTube today. How would you explain the difference between being a Catholic and being a Protestant. Right. Lots of differences, but let me focus on some of the major differences. At the foundational level, Protestantism is based on the idea that God gave us a rule book, a manual on Christian life, a theology textbook that is sufficient to answer all questions about faith and practice. And the sole rule of faith for the Church is this book that we call the Bible, and that the function of the Bible, the purpose of the Bible, is to instruct us in what to believe and what to do, and anything that's not in Scripture is not obligatory for the Christian life, and anything that is in Scripture, the plain sense of the Bible, is just what Christians are supposed to believe and do. And that's, that's all she wrote. And anything else that you bring to the table, whether it be human reason or sacred tradition or custom, may have some value, but ultimately it's subservient to this unique authority of the Bible as the sole rule of faith. Um, now, the Catholic Church believes, and the Scriptures teach, that that is not the case. Nowhere does the Bible make this claim about itself— no place in divine revelation do we learn that God intended these 66 books of the Protestant canon of the Bible to serve that function. And the books themselves give no such impression. When you pick up, say, the book of Ecclesiastes or the Psalms or the book of Genesis, for that matter, or the New Testament letter of Jude or Second Peter or whatever it might be, they don't read like a guide to the Christian life or theology that's there to answer every mm-hmm. conceivable question. They read like occasional literature. Yeah and poetry, and psalms, and narrative, and a whole bunch of different things that obviously are edifying and can be a source of theological reflection and prayer and liturgy and, and, and study, uh, but not a rule of faith, not a, not a final guide to Christian life. Christ, in fact, gave, in the Scriptures himself, gave a different rule of life. He said to the apostles, go into all nations and make disciples and teach them everything I've commanded you. Teach, 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 teach everything I, will command, I commanded you. That's all Jesus' oral tradition. He didn't write anything down. And I'll be with you to the end of the age, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So when Christ made provision for handing on the faith, he didn't give us a book. He gave us an institution, a society, governed by specific authorized individuals with the promise of divine assistance. I will be with you till the end of the age. So the number one biggest difference is that Protestantism is founded unbiblically upon the Bible, and the Catholic Church is biblically founded upon the teaching of Christ represented to us in the church that he established to whom he gave authority to teach. That's a big, big, big difference. A lot of other differences flow out of that. Um, major differences in the way we understand our relationship to God and the nature of salvation. Uh, in a nutshell, Protestants believe that we're saved, reconciled to God by faith alone. Uh, Catholics believe that through faith God changes us, that he pours his love into our hearts, makes mm. us new people, we're born again, by water and the Spirit, and thus we are able to live the ethical life, uh, live the command to love God and love neighbor in ways that enables God to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So the, the component of God working within us, the ethical life, uh, the imitation of Christ, is really essential to our understanding of what it means to be saved, means to be in a relationship to him. You can't love God and be at enmity with him in your heart. Uh, loving God means being changed into his image and likeness. So that's a big, big difference. 
um, Catholics believe that one of the principal means of grace beyond faith is the sacraments that Christ instituted, these visible means of grace, these visible symbols and rites that present the faith to us in a nonverbal way, if you will, making them tangible and sensible to us uh, and conforming our minds and our affections and our sensibility ever more to the reality of Christ's own person. Uh, we could go on and on and on, but those are some major differences. I, you did a lot in under five minutes. Well, you know, <laughs> did my best. That's why we do this show. Thank you so much uh, for your question, Daniel. Glad you're watching us today on YouTube. In a moment, we'll talk with Ian in Rockland, Maine. Also, Maria in New York. Lines are open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. For Call to Communion, do stay with us. Hey, lines are open for you with uh, Dr. David Andrews and Call to Communion here on EWTN. If you have a question about the Catholic faith or if you'd like to explain uh, what exactly is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. In both cases, here's the same phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ian is listening to us in Rockland, Maine on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ian, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I'm a little nervous, so let me uh, so bear with me here. Sure. So let me start from the beginning. Uh, when I was 20 years old, uh, me and another Catholic girl got married. It was just was coincidence. We were both married. Um, not too long later, we had divorced uh, in the court system, and life went on. We had no children. Uh, my 30s, got married, have a wonderful family. Uh, in between that span of time, I had very little religious practice at all. Um, finally, I got uh, you know, back into the faith, back into the church. And, uh, you know, throughout that time, I had uh, such a blessing to receive the Eucharist. And uh, I had found, I had, in just some reading, that it's a sin not to, you know, to receive communion when you have an outstanding marriage like that. Uh, that I haven't gone through the annulment process within the Church. So the first two few times I've been sitting down while everyone goes up, and it's just like, really hurts, you know, and it's just, life has been more difficult since, and I just feel such an emptiness, and I'm just wondering how long, you know what I mean? Like, is this really, you know, are you expected like that, you know, to, to just withhold from the Eucharist until what could be a year or two until the Church completes the work? Yes, thank you so much. And I'm uh, really, I'm profoundly sorry for the struggle that you're in and the pain of it, and I'm appreciative of that, and I'm sympathetic to it. And, uh, and I will tell you some stuff, uh, but, but there, are, there are conversations that you need to have in the privacy of the confessional that I, it's not appropriate for me to have on the air, and I can't pry into those parts of your life. So, so don't just, you know, sit on your hands and do nothing. But, like, bring these issues up with your pastor in the context of the confessional, and, and there, there are approaches that you can take that there that I'm not going to deal with here, but I do want to make that counsel to you. Um, in a more general sense, uh, I would encourage you that, you know, we have a culture in the modern church of everybody always goes to communion always, and it can be baked into us that, hey, you know, the point of going to Mass is to go to communion. And unfortunately, that's that's really not true at all. And I, and I think that we we as the catechists in the church do a disservice to the people of God 
if we leave them with the impression that, like, you know, the main point of going to Mass is to receive Holy Communion. For a thousand years in the Latin West, the laity did not commune on a regular basis. They would commune maybe once a year at Easter. They didn't regularly receive Holy Communion. And uh, the Council of Trent authorized a catechism. It was the first universal catechism in the Church. It was called the Roman Catechism or the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Mm -hmm. And in the article on the Eucharist, uh, the Fathers write that the Eucharist is two things. It is both a sacrament and a sacrifice. Say that again. It's two things, both a sacrament and a sacrifice. And the difference between the two is very great. That's what the Fathers say. The difference between the two that is to say, the difference between the Eucharist as a sacrament and the Eucharist as a sacrifice is very great. Very great. And when the documents of the Second Vatican Council speak of the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian faith, that passage is usually misquoted and misunderstood. If you attend to the actual words and the actual context, what the text says is the Eucharistic sacrifice is the source and summit of the faith. It mm. doesn't say the Eucharist as communion. It says the Eucharist as sacrifice is the source and summit of the faith. And why is that? Right? And this really makes a difference to the way you think about your Christian spirituality. If, you're, if your conception is the reception of Holy Communion is the source and summit of my faith, that puts you in a passive, receptive mode, which is not a bad mode, but it's not the only mode. Okay. If, however, you reorient to the idea of sacrifice as the source and summit of my faith, mm -hmm. you're far more biblical. St. Paul says that it is the offering of ourselves, the offering of our bodies in living sacrifice, that is our spiritual act of worship. When Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, the Father seeks true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, this is what he was talking about. The offering of ourselves along with the body and blood of Christ— this is, the, this is the true worship. This is the rational worship that's pleasing to God. This is the source and summit of our faith, the imitation of Christ by our own self-offering. And so, whether or not I receive the sacrament of communion, say, in, for one reason or another, a person is, uh, shouldn't be going to communion right now, the act of not receiving Holy Communion can be as beautiful an act of sacrifice and an act of participation in what is the source and summit, namely the Eucharistic sacrifice, as the reception of Holy Communion. My decision to abstain from Holy Communion could potentially be far more salutary, mm. far more spiritual, place me in far deeper communion with Christ than an ill-considered decision to receive Holy Communion. Because of your awareness. Because yeah. of your awareness and yeah. because of your intentionality. Like, I'm, uh, my participation here is specifically ordered to the offering of myself and my various crosses mm -hmm. to God as my spiritual act of worship. And so rather than seeing your situation as one where you are deprived and cut off from a source of grace, that's not the way the Church sees it at all. You're actually opening yourself up to a flood of grace— tactile contact, you know, physical contact with the consecrated species is not at all necessary to, to fruitful participation in the Mass in a way that brings salvation and holiness. And, and we, 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 we emphasize the real presence 
correctly. But if we emphasize that in isolation from the question of the sacrifice, then we lead to these kinds of misunderstandings where people think, well, if I go, to, what's the point in going to Mass if I can't receive communion? All the point in the world. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Ian, thank you so much for your call. Appreciate that, and we hope that it's helpful for you on your journey. Call to communion here on EWTN. Maria is in New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Uh, Maria, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I'm not sure if this is relevant to your program, and I mentioned that to your screener. Um, I'm feeling a bit beat up, and I, I'm not finding any solace. Um, I've lost my husband in March after mm. a long illness, and now I'm losing my son, our son, who's 33, to PTSD, complex PTSD, wherein his anger toward me only has increased and keeps increasing um, as the sole reason that he is, quote-unquote, disabled. He's raised Catholic. He believes in God, does not go to Mass. Um, I don't know what to do. I go to Mass. I pray the rosary daily. I offer, you know, I just sacrifice after sacrifice. I'm trying to get through my own personal grieving. I can't. I don't know how to help him. My words, he twists. Um, to look as though I'm trying to be the victim instead of him. Uh, He's accused me of neglect. Um, You know, I can go to confession forever, but he's seeing things in his life that things didn't happen, but he will not let me explain either. Um, So I'm caught, and I'm just making me physically and mentally sick, and I don't want to lose my hope, but um, I am. Maria, yeah. I am I am profoundly sympathetic to you. I understand your words so much better than you might think. And I I know what you're going through having had very similar experiences in my life. Uh really really I do. I know what you're going through and I understand the pain and the confusion. Um and uh, so I'm going to speak to you not as a theologian but as a human being, a parent, a, a child, a brother, a sibling, a relative, you know, who, who has had to get, navigate these kind of waters. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, and this is, again, this is, this is nothing authoritative here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is just my human walk. Um, there, there is no reason to try to persuade your son of your sincerity, of your goodwill, or that his perspective is somehow missing something like that is a dead end that is when somebody's locked in like that particularly when they have some sort of trauma that has profoundly marked them psychologically like mm. PTSD that is not the way to go you're not going to make any headway that way um they the 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 best response to that that I have ever encountered um honestly is from a secular psychiatrist by the name of David Burns uh, he has a book called Feeling Good Together that I really recommend, uh, but he has boiled down empathy. What does it mean to, like, relate to somebody empathetically? And, and he has five steps, and I'm going to try to enumerate them for you. Uh, they're hard to do um, in the sense that they require you to bite your tongue a lot, uh-huh. <laughs> but they're easy to do because they're easy to understand. Okay. Um, if step number one is agree with what the person tells you, 
no matter how absurd it seems, no matter how offensive it might seem, agree with them. Don't argue with them. Tell them they're right. No qualification. Not, you're right, but. You're right, but you know what I was thinking was. No, you're just, you're right. Now, if they say something manifestly absurd and stupid and factually wrong, what you do is you find something about what they're saying that you can agree with. But mm. the, fo- the focus of it is find a way to agree with them and just agree with them without qualification. Disarm them. Um, you, uh, you ask them questions about their position in a way that's sincere, giving them the opportunity to open up and pile on. So, you know, Mom, you're, it's all your fault. You're right. It is my fault. Like, let's count the ways. Can you like, elaborate? Like, maybe I didn't hear you the first time. Tell me some of the ways in, that maybe I've missed that really was my fault. I really want to hear what you're having to say to me. And all the while, you're just sitting there. Your tongue is bleeding because you're just <laughs> biting it in half, right? But you, it, yes, I agree with you. Two, tell me more. Um, uh, th- three is um, I, I'm, I'm not going to say anything in the second person. You, 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 you. When I talk about my feelings, I. Not, I feel that you did a bad job. No, no, that's cheating. <laughs> you know, you can say, I feel sad. I'm sorry. I feel shame. I feel pain. I feel mm-hmm. disappointment. But nothing that could be construed as directed back at them. Okay. Um, I got up to three, right? Yeah. Um, oh, oh, yeah. There's another one. Um, uh, feeling and thought empathy. Let me hear what you're saying. Are you telling me that this is what you think? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. I imagine that makes you feel like this. Yeah, that's how it makes me feel. Right? Being able to express the person's thoughts and feelings back to them in a way that they can affirm. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and then finally, uh, complimenting them. You know, it's brave of you to come out and share this with me after all these years of whatever, you know, or I really appreciate that and I have a lot of admiration for you because of this thing that you've done or this perspective that you've taken or this stand that you've taken. Find some way to turn it into a compliment. And here's what happens. If you can do that consistently, never insisting on your own point of view, and that's a very biblical thing when Paul talks about what love looks like. Mm -hmm. It's this kind of behavior, you know, this laying down in front of somebody else. the, uh, the the fight goes out of them. You know, you're a worthless piece of so-and-so. Yep, you're absolutely right. Mm. I totally am. Yeah, yeah, you, you nailed me. It takes the wind out of their sails. It, it, I mean, it might not happen the first time. Yeah. But it takes the fight out of them. Sure, It sure. takes the fight out of them. And, and here's the irony. You don't ever have to turn it off. Because the more you do this, it begins to change their perception of you. You don't ever have to argue with them that you're a better person than they think you are. <laughs> you're, you've become a better person than they think you are. You start manifesting it to you, to them, and their and their attitude towards you starts to change. And um, uh, th- my other counsel is, be willing to stick with it for years. Stick stick with it for the long haul. Be committed to the process. Um. And uh, and and accept the pain, yeah. right? And this is gonna hurt. It hurts now. Like, what have you got to lose? You're already hurting. Yeah. Right. It'll hurt, and it might take a while, but it works. It works. I promise you, it works. Maria, God bless you. Thank you so much for your call, and we hope that is helpful for you. 
and, and for your son as well. Call to communion here on EWTN. Back to the phones in just a moment. Let me tell you about something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog where you can celebrate and pray for grandmothers and grandchildren with a unique Novena bracelet designed and handcrafted by jewelry designer Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle. Now this uh, grandmother's Novena bracelet, uh, St. Anne with Mary and Miraculous Medals, it's made with nine very colored Amazonite stones to represent a novena and also nine months of pregnancy. They're highlighted with silver-colored decorative caps. The bracelet has shiny silver-plated hearts throughout with larger silver hearts decorated with angel's wings surrounding a St. Anne and Mary medal, plus a small crucifix and a miraculous medal. Each bracelet comes in its own gift box and we're even going to throw in a prayer card to St. Anne to boot. How about that? It's the Grandmother's Novena Bracelet, St. Anne with Mary and Miraculous Medal. Check it out now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. Just put in uh, Grandmother's Novena Bracelet in the search box. I'm sure you'll uh, find it right away. Let's go now to uh, Bardstown, Kentucky, and talk with Wayne, a first-time caller there, listening on the Savior Radio Network. Hey, Wayne, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, sir. I was, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I was just wondering uh, on the uh, Hail Mary prayer, on the, uh, in, in it, it, people recite that Mary is our hope, and well, Scripture clearly tells us that Jesus Christ is our only hope, so I was wondering what your... Uh, would be on that. Yeah, um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So actually the prayer you're citing is not the Hail Mary, it's what's called the Hail Holy Queen, yes. where we refer to Mary as our life, our sweetness, and our hope. And uh, the, this, is a, this is an unfortunate fact about Catholic language when it is encountered by non-Catholic people. Um, they take it literally. It's not always <laughs> meant to be taken at face value. And what I mean by that is a lot of these prayers in the Church tradition arose during uh, the Middle Ages, during what you might think of as like the Troubadour era, mm. right? And it's best to think of them in the genre of love poetry. Now, if you were to dig around in Tom's sock drawer, you know, and, <laughs> and pull up a love note that Adrienne wrote him 30 years ago or that he wrote to her, you would probably find, like, like any two lovers, ri- ridiculous things that are obviously understood between lovers to be uh, this hyperbolic language, it's mm. playful language. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you might tell your spouse, uh, you know, you're the you're the greatest thing in the universe. Well, not literally. <laughs> you know, I mean, I love my wife, but she's not literally the greatest thing in the in the universe. I mean, Jesus is the greatest thing in the universe, but mm. but I, you know, what it means within the context of the relationship. Sure. Right. And and when Catholics use this, it's it's poetic devotional language that should be read like love poetry. It's not meant to be a statement of like of strict theological accuracy. And all you have to do is like read when the church does talk very literally and straightforward in her dogma about what we think Mary is and what she does. And it's obvious that we by no means do we think that Mary has supplanted Jesus any more than I think my wife has supplanted Jesus if I say, you know, I, I couldn't live without you. Well, I mean, could I literally live without my wife? Uh, yeah, sure. Lots of men are, are widowed, and they live without their wives. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure I could get up and put my shoes on and get to work in the morning if my wife passed away. When I say I couldn't live with you, it's not a literal statement. 
it's a it's a statement born of love and exaggeration and yes. poetry. Okay, so what is the relationship of Christ to Mary, uh, and in what sense is Mary hope to us? Okay, well, let's say I have a problem. Does it give me hope for my wife to pray for me? Does it give me hope to know that my priest friends are praying for me, our lay people friends are praying for me, or Tom is praying for me? Of course it gives me hope. Why? Because they're praying to Jesus. Yes. And I have confidence that mm. Christ hears the prayers of his faithful in the body of Christ one for another. And so the only, the only way in which Mary gives me hope, it's no different from the way that Tom gives me hope, or my wife gives me hope, or my kids give me hope insofar as they are directing their prayers to Christ on my behalf, because everything comes ultimately through Jesus. That's the Catholic perspective. Yes, indeed. Wayne, thanks so much uh, for your call. We hope that's helpful for you, sir. Thanks for checking in from Bardstown, Kentucky. Uh, Paul is watching us on Facebook today. Paul says, at my old parish, there is a priest who is married and has children. I've never heard of a priest being able to be married. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So priests, there have always been married priests in the history of the Catholic Church, you know, going all the way back to St. Peter. Um, and several of the other apostles were married as well. Paul was actually one, on the minority of, of unmarried apostles, uh, and there have been a married clergy ever since and, and continue to be in the Catholic Church. Now, here's the difference, a couple differences. One, you, you never knew that a priest could be married. A priest can be married, but a priest can't become married. And that's also biblical. Mm. St. Paul says that, uh, you know, a, a, a priest can be the husband of but one wife. So if, uh, if a priest is married and his wife dies, he can't marry again. Okay. And if a man is ordained and he's unmarried, he can't subsequently get married without, having, without leaving the clerical state. Okay. All right. So uh, a married man can be ordained to the priesthood, but a priest cannot enter the married state without actually leaving the priesthood, their active priesthood. And because Christ was celibate, and because St. Paul was celibate, and because Scripture says that that's the more appropriate way to serve God in the Church, in the Catholic Church, in the Roman Rite, there are actually 24 different churches in the Catholic family. The Roman Rite is the biggest. That's the one that you usually think about. The, the law in the Roman Rite of the Catholic Church is that priests should overwhelmingly be celibate overwhelmingly, in imitation of Christ and the Apostles. Mm -hmm. Well, at least the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> but there are exceptions. And the major exception is when you have someone, uh, uh, in particular from the Anglican tradition, that's very common, mm -hmm. um, who is a, a married clergyman in his own tradition. And because of the sort of uh, affinity of mentality between uh, the Anglican Church and the Catholic, there's no affinity of sacraments, but there's sort of an, an, an affinity of, of mentality. Um, there's an exception made for for men of the Anglican tradition who are married clergy. When they become Catholic, they can, with certain rules, uh, be ordained in the Catholic Church. Uh, and, of course, say if an Orthodox priest who was married became Catholic, same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, we do appreciate that. Paul, thanks for ch checking in today on Facebook. Uh, Priya is watching us on YouTube. Priya says... What makes you think that offering up your suffering will bring salvation for others? Yeah, thanks. So, well, when you say bring salvation for others, let's be, let's be clear. Uh, if I have a headache and I say, uh, dear God, I'm offering this headache for Tom's salvation, that does not mean that Tom automatically, you know, gets a get into heaven free card. You know, that doesn't, that, that one act of sacrifice does not guarantee that, that Tom goes to heaven. 
Um, however, uh, any prayer that I offer for someone else mm-hmm. uh, can ha- God can use that to grant that other person grace. And prayers are more or less efficacious as they are more or less meritorious. St. James says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And sacrifice, which is, which is the language of love, right, is a particularly uh, powerful, meritorious act. Paul tells us it's the very essence of our Christian faith to offer our bodies in living sacrifice, which is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that he can fill up in his own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Paul understands his own sufferings mm-hmm. to have redemptive value for the rest of the Christian world because of his connection to Jesus. This isn't in some, some opposition to the sacrifice of Christ. Mm. It's a way of of recapitulating and entering into the sacrifice of Christ. It's the way of actualizing Christ's sacrifice in my own life that I become like Christ, and like Jesus offered himself, I offer myself, and only through my connection to him does that have any kind of merit or value that can be applied for the sake of others. That's a very biblical doctrine. Mm. Priya, thanks for your uh, contribution there uh, and watching us today on YouTube. This final uh, anonymous email as we're heading out of here, uh, are all people who have baptisms that are recognized by the Catholic faith essentially baptized as Catholics? Well, uh, so in an extended sense, we would say they all belong to the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. in an extended sense. But obviously, they don't all share explicitly in the Catholic faith. And so their, their, their communion with the Catholic faith is wounded. It's partial. It's, it's, uh, it's not complete. And that's why when, say, a baptized Protestant be- decides to begin being Catholic, we, uh-huh. we speak of that person being, um, uh, in- being fully incorporated into the Catholic ah, Church, you know? okay. uh, entering into full communion with the Catholic Church. They had a partial communion. Now they have a full communion. Very good. Thanks for your anonymous email. What a great way to wrap up the program. Got a bunch of emails in. We got some calls from a lot of people all over the place and also questions via YouTube and Facebook. I think that's a wrap. Dr. David Andrews, thank you. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN on the radio side at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTNradio.net, EWTNradio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you next time right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a wonderful day. God bless.